hours, 32 minutes and 40 seconds, East African time, time for John Sibi Okumu on Wednesday. This being Wednesday, the 3rd of August, 2022, Hamjambo Nakaribuni, hello and welcome. Five days to go. Last week, we talked about the country's youth and the elections. In this edition, our focus is on women. Do forgive me for gobbling my intro. I've got a lot to get through to set us up. Of the essence is Clause 3 of Article 27 in the Bill of Rights. Women and men have the right to equal treatment, including the right to equal opportunities in political, economic, cultural and social spheres. And given the circumstances, we might add Clause 8, the state shall take legislative and other measures to implement the principle that more, not more than two-thirds of the members of elective appointed bodies shall be of the same gender. And to add to the association of ideas, in 2020, Kenya's female population amounted to approximately 27 million, while the male population amounted to approximately 26 million inhabitants. As of 2020, Kenya's population had 98.8 males per 100 females. Simply put, there are more women than men in Kenya, which is going to keep begging the question throughout our conversation, why do women not make more of this numerical advantage? And finally, I have been put in mind from my own studies of a quote by the French author-philosopher Simone de Beauvoir, On ne n'est pas femme, on le devient. One is not born a woman, one becomes one. Which suggests that society stacks the odds against women, not politically, but culturally and socially. And what's the history of universal women's suffrage in countries associated with Africa? Germany, 1918. Spain, 1924. France, 1944, Portugal, 1976, the United Kingdom, 1928, the United States, 1965. In other words, not that long ago. Our mystery guest is a lawyer and an academic who was a former dean of a law school. Her appellation is doctor, so I shall permit myself to call her Daktari with respect. Daktari, I'm, I can slow down now, goodness. <laughs> Daktari, I'm interested in your own response to the sample answers to the question. As a woman voter, what would you most want from the incoming government? J. Kama mpigaji kura mwanamuke ni jambo gani haswa Ungependa serikali ijayo itekeleze. Swala ambalo ningetaka serikali ambayo utakayoshika usukani baada ya uchaguzi ni wazingatie ama washuhulikie swala la nafasi ya mwanamke katika serikali ama katika jamii kwa sababu unapata kwamba wanawake tumewekwa pembeni. At the top of that list should be creation of jobs and employment opportunities for the youth. I think the incoming government should not encourage per se, push the notion that women don't have to have so many children and they should have children within their means such that they can create a comfortable life for themselves and for their children. I would expect 
maybe tax deduction. As a third world country, we are really heavily taxed. First and foremost, food security should be given priority. Health sector has deteriorated, hence I expect the incoming government to look into the matter. The inflation is too high for common Mwananchi, so I would love the incoming government to look into matters in economy. While there has been progress in terms of women becoming leaders, I still do believe that there is still a lot that needs to be done to help women to get into leadership roles. So the government should focus on making an economy and a business environment that is very conducive for people to one start their own businesses two for scalability of the already existing businesses Dr. uh your take on what you've just heard uh thank you molimu uh, for inviting me here today and i think uh sampling what your 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 list you, 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 i mean basically the people who are polled to give their views about what they would like the incoming government to do i think it is clear that across the board the majority are saying they want the constitution to be implemented and this is with respect to several clauses various clauses uh one woman is saying that um she would like uh, matters to do with food security, health addressed. You're looking at uh, the Bill of Rights that talks about socioeconomic rights. Uh, there's a woman who said that um, she wants, uh, you know, focus to be given to women to get into leadership positions. You're looking at various clauses of the Constitution, Article 27, 100. Um, there are quite a number, those that pertain to elections, uh, so that women can be able to participate and get into leadership positions. Um, talking about the economy, uh, the Constitution, of course, has many prescriptions about how we're supposed to run our country. And therefore, uh, you know, all these things point to one thing. Women just want the Constitution to be animated. Dr. let there's so much to go through here, but I did mention it in the introduction. Explain to me what is the two-thirds gender rule and why after so many votes in Parliament to implement it, is it impossible to achieve? What, what does it mean? Is it, let me be, there are three people, if one of them is a man, the other two have got to be a, women, if two of them are women, one of them has got to be a man, everywhere in society, is that it? Because I can tell you, you can't implement it. Uh, actually, John, it is implementable. And essentially what the two-thirds gender rule is a response to is previously in leadership positions, we have had circumstances and situations where you have an all-man, um, you know, uh, an all-man, an all-male or mostly male parliament, mostly male, um, you know, leadership positions in appointive positions and are generally male-dominated, um, let's say, hierarchy in the public service. So the two-thirds gender rule essentially was brought to ensure that women are also included. Because, of course, I think science, not I think, science and research has shown that women and men bring different perspectives to the table. And you're right, John. If we're three, uh, we can't have all three as women or all three as men. The two-thirds gender rule is to say that both men and women must be involved. Appointive positions, those ones which you apply for in the public service, and then elective positions, the ones that we are going to go into the polls next week. And... Um, 
as I said, the reason for this is to incorporate all perspectives. Article 177, John of the Constitution, talks about the two-thirds gender rule at the county uh, assembly level. And there's a mechanism that is built into that that enables the achievement of that two-thirds gender rule, where they say that once the elections have taken place, then after the elections, there must be top-ups which will be able to bring that figure to the not more than two-thirds level. This element was left out when they were uh, creating Article 97 and 98 that pertains to the National Assembly and Senate. So this is where the problem is. Uh, if they just use the same mechanism in Article 177, John Wheeler, I mean, Walimu, we shall be able to achieve that. Oh, you can call me what you like. You can call me John. I love both names. Uh, <laughs> whichever comes easiest. But I will uh, ask you this. I'm still, I, I set you up uh, at the outset by saying why the need for special pleading for women when statistically, if the idea is to go to the ballot box, they have it in their power to determine the fate of this country politically. Um, well, we are referring there to the fact that women are statistically a majority uh, and almost even, now I think uh, with the last census, we're an almost even number with males. Huh? And uh, something comes to mind. Well, well the, the, the figures I, uh, you know, Wikipedia and all these things, I said at the beginning, there are more women than men who, more than men, more, a million uh, more. Yes, but um, as, as years have gone, um, as, we've, as, we've, as we've progressed through the years, Molimo, mm. uh, we are approaching an almost near even based on the last uh, Kenya National Bureau of Statistics. So uh, sorry, before have. you go any further, my yes. query was why do we need special pleading for women when they have the political wherewithal to make things happen? Because all of a sudden we're talking about two-thirds gender, like, oh, poor dears, we've got to help them along. Why so? Well, I'll, to answer your question, Molimo, I'm going to approach it this way. There are ethnic communities in our country where when a man is leaving home or he's um, coming home, he will tell people that I've left only children at home, and that includes his wife. There are ethnic communities in this country where uh, for the one chicken that is slaughtered in the home has got parts for both parts that are specifically for males and for me for females. And when you look at the media, this same positioning, it's about positioning Walimu. Mm. This same positioning is also replicated in the media where you see males and females in most media, um, you'll find that women are positioned on the periphery, playing peripheral roles. Uh, you know, to make, to decorate, to adorn. Not entirely true, not entirely true. Every time I open my newspaper, every other major head of a corporation, be it universities, professor this, doctor that, uh, uh, they're, they're women uh, in uh, very high positions. Uh, we're not talking so about... How, so how do they make it? Well, we're not talking about the 10 women who are in at that level, Mwalimu. We're talking yes. about the majority of that statistic you talked about, where the majority are literally not existing at that level. So we appreciate that a few women have been able to penetrate and go through the structures, but the majority are still at that lower level where they lack that recognition. Because they haven't been able to overcome the social cultural impediments of which you speak. Yeah, there are social cultural impediments that are at play. Um, there is, of course, when you look at the education sector, girls are the ones who fall pregnant and fall off school. 
so there are gender roles that, of course, um, work against women to be able to uh, go through this system as men. For example, when a woman becomes pregnant at work, this means taking time off. She doesn't move at the same level with other men in terms of promotions. And that's why you find that at the very top you find that there are much fewer women compared to men as you'll find them at the lower scale. There are areas where, of course, this has improved, like the judiciary. You'll find a lot of women at the level of the magistracy. and uh, uh, But when you get to the higher levels of the Court of Appeal going onwards, you find that you have many more men occupying you know, the prime positions. Well, I think um, 6.45, time for our first break. Dada, we continue. Uh, and uh, Daktari, I'm also getting mixed up in my appellations for you. Gosh, uh, let's go for the more respectful one. Daktari, uh, I, we're going back to this whole idea of special pleading. I'm asking myself whether the idea is that, I don't know whether you know of the great or late author Ken Walibora, who wrote a play called... Um, Mwiziwetu or something to that uh, and that one should rejoice in the fact that one's own is at the pinnacle of things so if I come from a certain ethnic group and my, our guy is the president uh, as a luo, as a luo, luya, I rejoice in the fact that we've got one of ourselves at the top so are you saying that if there is a woman at the top or in high positions every other woman will stand to benefit so that by that token, let's be slightly more topical and say, is the Martha Karua effect going to bring every woman to the table when we've had a deputy president who's been at loggerheads with his president for the last 10 years or the last three of the 10? But you know what I'm saying? The mere fact that you are whatever gender you are has no political benefits, Dr. Um, you're right, Molimo, when you raise the question of uh, Martha Karua being... I think you've seen the opposition saying that they are talking about all women and not one woman uh, because one woman rising to the top um, does not address oh, you know, the issues of the rest of the women. But I do uh, hasten to add that uh, all parties, I think, have tried the majority of the, let me say the two key parties appear to have tried to make uh, uh, some effort in trying to address the issue concerning the disenfranchisement of women. Uh, trying to pull as many women up as they can. Sorry, my beg to differ. Maybe we're uh, even in the process leading up to this. The, the respect, because we're trying to tie up so many ideas at the same time. The the respect of the two thirds gender rule at the party level seems to have been something of a shambles. That is the truth, uh, John. Um, you will find that there were court cases. I, I suppose this is not the... You don't want us to discuss the court case or the reason why the two-thirds gender rule did not seem to materialize as it should have in the political parties. No, I wouldn't because that's not the program that I'm running. Yes. I, I, I want you to stick to the ideas behind these things. I'm tackling you on ideas, on major sort of intellectual ideas. Uh, maybe if I had the opportunity to respond, I'd be able to explain yes, do. Uh, what it is that I'm saying. Mm. Uh, I think your question essentially is, uh, why is there a special pleading for women in politics? And um, the fact of the matter, I think, which you did indicate before, that women, of course, you know, form a substantial uh, number of the voting majority. 
And your question is, then why don't women put in, um, you know, women as in those leadership positions? Why do they then go out and vote males as, um, you know, as their as their political leaders? And uh, this, of course, has its origins in uh, our history, our history where opportunities were mainly given to men. I think you gave a rundown of when women got the vote in the majority of even Western countries. You'll realize that men for for the longest time males have been stereotyped as the leaders, and this starts from the family. It starts from the family. The man is the head of the home. It starts religion primes people to be able to see males as as leaders. It starts with um, the opportunities given to males at at independence um, in this country. So all these things, why 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 be involved or think about politics is because of what it's able to you know bring to you first of all if you get a job as a po- i mean if you if you get into politics that's a job so you get opportunities that come with that and we're saying that opportunities that come with that also women should be part of it number two you get voice and so when you're in that house in the august house you're able to articulate and voice things because they say that um the wearer of the shoe knows where it pinches most so as much as we know male males participate with us in our homes or in different spheres in what we do but women will be able to articulate these issues better because they are the wearers of the shoe. And then number three, as I said, perspectives are different. Women will f- will focus on not just women, but also uh, children because they are the ones who are the, 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 the predominant carers. Women play caregiving roles for children, for senior citizens, for the people in our homes who have disability. It is women who generally are concerned with this. And therefore, these issues find their ways into parliament into our county assemblies because women are now part of those spaces. So it is to be able to have voice and to articulate, which is why we need women there. And the cultural barriers that there have been that have prevented women, that have held them back, is the reason why uh, women are protected by Article 27.8 that makes it um, a requirement that not more than two-thirds of either gender should be in that in, in that house, in those different spaces. Right. I. I I would, I'm obliged to move tack uh, a wee bit simply because there won't be enough time. Uh, I'd, I'd like to look to the present and look at some of the promises made in the manifestos. And then again, my, my primary um, point of uh, engagement is that many of the parties are making promises to women on the understanding that they should vote for them, uh, promises on health care, promises on education, promises on having great kitties. Uh, there's a hustler fund in, on one side of the equation. Hundreds of billions of shillings spread over a five-year pe- period. Basically saying to you, uh, come August, mid-August, uh, freedom is coming. These are the slogans that are, uh, are meant to appeal to us. And I'm saying, again, can I put it in one sentence? If we're in this debt that we hear about on the other side of the equation, where is the money going to come from to sustain? Pesa eco wapi? I think we've seen the, the the various political parties say in their manifestos how they intend to raise this money, and in short, they've said they intend to raise this money uh, through stoppage of corruption. That's one. They intend to sorry, raise. Uh, sorry, uh, I, do, I do not wish to be rude, but I get. But I mean, um, this is such a this is such a fraught moment that I'd like to take you back on that. You talked about the history. Is the fight against corruption only going to take place from mid-August 
and be carried out in the first hundred days or the year that people are saying. In other words, doesn't our history speak to, especially when many of the players on the political playground, Daktari, we know them, they're our chums, we've seen them before. What is going to change through another election on a specific day that would give me hope as a skeptic, as a cynic, to say that things are going to improve? Maybe I'll respond to the question you asked, John, before I come to what you've uh, the, the secondary part, which is that you asked where is this money going to come from? Mm. And from what I've seen from the manifestos, the money is going to come from stoppage of corruption. It's going to come from taxes. It's going to come from uh, prudent use of uh, the, the resources that the country has. And so your secondary question has to do with why should people believe these parties? Why should people believe that in 100 days, for example, corruption will be stopped in 100 days, things are going to be turned around? Uh, clearly, the situation that's at hand right now, I think everybody understands and knows that we're deeply in trouble in terms of debt. We're deeply in trouble in terms of so many things. Whichever party comes into power certainly will require time, I think, to think how to go about this. And I think there'll be no quick fix. And certainly I don't expect monumental things will have happened uh, within 100 days to radically change things. But I think the important part that needs to be achieved within the first few days is to steer the ship and place it on course to be able to achieve these things. Can I take you back to a much more mundane image? Let's, let's assume that there is theft in the house that I live in. Mm -hmm. And over the months I leave uh, 100 bob on the table and next minute it's disappeared. And there's so many people who work for me. There's my own family, there's the gardener, there's the cook, whoever I might, my cousins, my aunties and everything else. And I'm saying that um, lots of, lots is being stolen from this family. And uh, next week, I'm going to put a stop to it. Doesn't that seem fanciful? The idea that we have lost maybe whatever figures are being banded about, Daktari, We've lost, say, 800 billion shillings. And you'll say, right, we're going to stop that. And once we've got the, once we've stopped it, but nobody's naming at this point prior to the elections, nobody is telling everybody who may have stolen the money to start being on tenterhooks and thinking, gosh, it could be me. Um, interesting question there, uh, Mwalimu. And uh, one would have wanted to hear the responses directly from the horse's mouth, um, either during the debates that took place recently or um, in the discourse that we see in the media from you know all the political parties. Um, I think your listeners will, will not be in any doubt about the fact that um, uh, changing course you know, from what has been a bad habit uh, is not something that can easily be stopped without radical measures being taken. So that um, if one wants an assurance about um, what any party will do when they come into power. Uh, I think what you're saying from our history is that it is not easy for one to build confidence um, in the fact that um, you know the parties are going to do what they say they will because from our history, we have had those promises over the years and when you know the, the different parties come to power, whoever comes to power, then a lot of people are disappointed and have been disappointed over time because these things have not been done. But um, so this is the reason why Mwalimu, um, one needs to interrogate and uh, be able to, Wananchi out there, uh, need to be able to, you know, take a good look at uh, what each of these uh, political parties are, are, you know, are offering or are saying. 
And then in the end, you're going to pick one from those who are available. And um, it then comes to uh, your good sense of um, based on what they are telling you and uh, what they are promising you and their track record that you're going to be able to determine who to vote for. And then most importantly, after you have voted, whoever comes into power, you have to play your role as a citizen. You have to. Um, you know, you have to keep this, you know, these parties or these people to account and there are various mechanisms and ways of doing so. So if you're going to elect somebody and then sit back and wait and watch them do what they're supposed to do, then you will be disappointed. But if you're going to elect persons and you're going to play your role as citizens through citizen movements, um, through civil society, through court action, through different ways, then I, su I, su I suppose that we shall all be playing our part to be able to make sure that things run like they should. Daktari, again, uh, I'm a literary sort. Let me put you into mind of dear old William Shakespeare when he has a play and all these people want to marry the fair Portia and they all have to go and choose these boxes. All these princes come from all over the place and they uh, it's a sort of a game of lots. They open and says, you know, it's not you, it's not you until they find. So without being, I'm in a show such as this, we're always being accused of being partisan. But you as an academic, and you as somebody who has followed trends and the history and it all, without naming names as it were, would you pick out any of those manifesto promises as ones to be embraced wholeheartedly by the great majority of women who are have-nots, not privileged, not sort of going off to the sauna and doing yoga exercises, mashinani? What should, what should the focus be? Because there's so many promises. Um, if I look across the manifestos, John, I see good things, you know, that have been, you know, promised to women across the manifestos. We have, for example, um, one manifesto that promises to be able to uh, place the issues of women at the center, for example, to ensure that uh, the not more than two-thirds, um, you know, requirement is actually put into, uh, is actually realized, is actualized. We have, um, you know, one manifesto that is, uh, you know, promise. I think many manifestos are promising to be able to achieve that not more than two thirds. We have promises that have been made on health, promises that have been made on education. All these things are very important to the advancement of women. Promises that have been made uh, to ensure that, you know, children are not left behind because the girl is one of these children and how her life pans out depends on, you know, the, the elements of education. We have got promises about um, placing women in critical positions uh, and paying, you know, you know, paying attention to the gender differences there are between men and women. Promises that have been made to be able to enable women uh, to get into business and then while in business to scale up. So these are all very, very important things across the manifestos that are important for women. And for me, I'm happy that the majority of manifestos, save one, uh, have been able to articulate issues that are very, very important to women. Uh, if this was, for example, the 80s or the 70s, there might have been nothing said about women. So I celebrate the fact that I think the majority of political parties have actually thought about it and have paid attention to that. And more importantly, our constitution has made prescriptions that must be, that must be, you know, that must be obeyed. So I celebrate that, John. Seven zero zero thirty-three. Time for another break.
Daktari, I would like to, if you would, dedicate the next 15 minutes to sort of breaking it all down. We've seen the big picture and uh, we're sowing seeds for thought. I'd like to go back to this idea of maybe, for want of a better word, class and the idea of rural Kenya versus urban Kenya, uh, arid Kenya versus agricultural Kenya. And maybe I will allow you to give a bit of a speech and say, are all women's problems the same everywhere in this country? And if so, could you demarcate some areas of focus? Um, Mwalimu, you're right. Uh, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. Where I mean, people are different and at different levels of their journey or, you know, steps in their journey. Uh, there are some things that are, you know, a common issue that is faced by women. For example, uh, it is the province of women to be able to, uh, you know, carry pregnancies and then be able to deliver. That is something that is common among women. I'm not saying all women do carry uh, children because some you know some women are probably not in a position to but that's the province of women therefore things that pertain to children will affect women across the board regardless of what social class you're in you give birth in this hospital another person gives birth in another hospital that are differently equipped manned by different you know uh, you know staff and the comforts that you get will be different uh, so you know uh, one of the things again that we celebrate Mwalimu is devolution because devolution was supposed to zero in on things at our local levels. At the national level, uh, when we were having, when we had the, the unitary government, you were looking at, you know, hospitals funded or facilitated at national levels. Some, 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 there were provinces and there were districts. Some don't have level sixes or level fives as we call them today. But with devolution today, Mwalimu, there's some certain things you'll find across the country, even in my local place, which of course I'm not at liberty to say right now, I do see dispensaries there and I've seen an MRI machine uh, there, which would never have been the case before. So devolution is one way of just trying to make sure that the issues of citizens, and this of course includes women, a closer eye is paid to this and that we sh should be able to replicate the good that there is across the country. And the idea, therefore, of um, what the national government working with county government is to give as many women the chance as possible to be able to, and the opportunity. Mwalimu, the, uh, the issue is opportunity. In my class, in the different schools I've been, we have had girls who've come from different parts of the country. And some parts of the country which are as remote as, but they have come from there. Today, when you go to your hospitals, John, they are manned by women and men from different parts of this of this country. This is to tell you that all people need an opportunity. They just need an opportunity to be able to emerge. So therefore, education at the lowest level, secondary school, the tertiary institutions, universities, all we are saying is give women an opportunity. And this includes, of course, in politics, because when we have women at our county assemblies uh, articulating the issues that are important to women at the local level. The issue, John, you talked about uh, rural versus um, urban. You talked about arid versus you know, agricultural. When we have women in the county assemblies in these areas with different character geographical characteristics, different um, economic characteristics, these women will be articulating the specific issues of women at that, at that level, which is why we need them in these assemblies. Can I take you back to tying this with the idea of manifestos and uh, one grouping saying, for example, 
that they would lay down to the International Monetary Fund that they mustn't provide subsidies and any loan that's given to us. Uh, I'm leading to this idea. We've uh, had a guest on this program before, uh, initially none other than C.J. Willy Mutunga, who suggested that um, we are not in charge of our own destinies because there are inputs from interested parties. Now, the world is becoming extremely polarized. Uh, we have uh, Ukraine-Russia standoff as we speak. We have a USA-China standoff. We have our traditional uh, relationship with the United Kingdom. I'm trying to suggest that maybe there are other forces that are interested in the state of Kenya in the years to come. Would you agree? Um, it goes without saying, uh, Mwalimu, um, a lot of the things that we benefit from in this country have been donated to us by international institutions. In other words, I'm trying to suggest, I'm leading to the fact that we're not actually managing our own budgets because our own economies of themselves, so we're interested in having the goodwill and the good faith of outsiders. Starting from the... So we shouldn't make promises when we haven't got the money yet. Um, that's a sort of line of thinking. The economies of third world countries or developing nations are clearly beholden. They are beholden because, one, I mean, countries can hardly uh, be able to finance their entire budget. Although we did have a time uh, in this country where we were able to meet a substantial part of the budget because of uh, fiscal, you know, uh, policies that had been adopted. But invariably, um, as they say, he who... Pays is it pays the piper, piper calls, calls the tune. Calls the tune huh? Yes, that's so a good old um, proverb, until yeah. we get to a point, Mwalimu, where we're able to finance our entire budget without having to rely on international financial institutions or others, then we clearly have to uh, kowtow or, or let's say dance to the tune. Yeah, but of, the, the, um, the subtext is that that we have no right to be making promises when we're assured we won't have the money to carry them out. Uh, that is clearly, you know, uh, something I think I would consider obvious mm. that one ought not to make a promise when they don't have the resources to be able to make uh, those promises. But um, the fact of the matter is those who are in charge of our of our finances know the kind of relationships they've already established with uh, these international financial institutions. And they therefore know how much those are plugging in and, and they plug in not for one year, two years, three years but for periods of years. But I was trying to suggest, so, again, looking at history, whether we're working towards, we don't know, whether we're sort of working towards a Cold War-type analysis, you know, in the, uh, where so Soviet-educated versus... Is this replaying itself where it's going to be China or the West, Turkey or the West, Egypt or the West? And again, I tie this off in terms of, you know, being very, very off the wall when we look at all the people who are putting in the infrastructure into our country, are they the ones who are to determine our financial destiny going forward? Uh, well, I'd have to say, Mwalimu, that um, you know it, ma it matters to do with finance or economics are not my, uh, my province, so I may not be able to respond to that uh, as competently as others may. But what I do know, I mean, based on the, on, on the, I think the clear question that uh, is emerging from what you're saying, you are saying that promises ought not to be made yes. when there is no certainty yes. as to whether 
uh, there'll be finances or resources for this. Exactly. So I want to imagine that all political parties have got people who are crunching the numbers, crunching the figures, advising them, and being able to tell them the what the what can happen and what can't happen. And I think um, on the part of legal would be to be able to create a legal framework that enables this finance, I mean, prudent financial spending and those sorts of things. Uh, again, uh, I, I, I go back to the idea I introduced you as a lawyer. And, and these, are, these are my, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, that another sentence that we're hearing over and over again is that women are being hard done by because at the workplace they're, they're paid less, for example. Now, the idea is that the, the Constitution is there meant to be as, as a guide, a sort of uh, a lighthouse telling us where to go, and legislation is there to follow. If, why are none of the candidates saying, when I come into power or when we come into power, anybody who has a, a house help or help will be obliged to pay them? Let's start off brass tacks will be obliged to the minimum wage for somebody who cleans your house and does all your dishes until midnight is say 20,000 bob uh, in other words through legislation in other if if they're women all you have to I, all I have to stand up you know sort of uh, like some sort of president of Chile or something and go on onto a balcony and say from now on every woman is going to be paid double what men are isn't that a legislative decree it would be but um, just on the question of um, equal pay for equal work the mm. Constitution for prohibits the payment of people who are doing the same job uh, different wages or different you know rates of pay our Employment Act is also very very clear on this but your question is has to do with um, why 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 no very why specific decrees are not being made and, and, with regard and, and to, and for I'm, example, and as a lay person, I'm always being told that women are being paid less over and over again. They get paid less for doing the same job, and not just here in Kenya. This is a worldwide phenomenon. It's a worldwide phenomenon, but in this country there exist clear laws and we have cases that have come to court on this. So I dare say that uh, on the question of women being paid less for the same job, that occurrence is not as frequent as it may be in other countries. And um, on the question of house helps, for example, the minimum wage was, I mean, the, a prescription was made about the minimum wage. And one of the things that employers who employ house helps, and invariably you'll find house helps in the majority of Kenyan households, said that um, they are not able to pay that minimum wage of about 11,000, 10,000, depending on if this person stays in your home or commutes to go elsewhere. They said they're not able to afford to pay. So you find a woman who's earning 15,000 shillings, paying her house help, I don't know, could be 4,000 shillings, and you're asking her to pay 10,000 shillings. She says, if I pay 11,000 or 10,000 to this, or 8,000 to this um, lady who helps me in the home, then I'll be left with nothing to pay for rent, etc. The realities of our times, this is in Europe, of course, in the Americas, in Australia, they have the minimum wage, uh, which, of course, by law, has got to be that way. But you see, these are also economies that are welfare economies that plug in to the welfare of people in different ways. Their healthcare is sorted. Uh, if you're out of a job, you can go to the job center and so forth and so on. But we don't have those safety nets in our country because our country is not a welfare. But not everybody uh, in the UK has a butler or a chauffeur. Yeah, they prefer not to because they, they can't you, unless, afford it. Yeah. Unless you belong to the royal family. They prefer not to have them because they can't afford it. Uh, but but in any event, as I said, uh, those are economies that have got safety nets uh, for, for people that we don't have in this country.
Dr. Terry, I'd like you to comment on something again, which is a link-up. Again, let's name names that Kenyans know about. We have a trade union movement that goes all the way back to Tom Boyer, whatever meetings in whatever in Mombasa, and it's morphed all the way through uh, uh, the Bildad Kagiers of this world. Uh, have women, and this is going to be the next segment, is whether, in fact, uh, I'm going to talk to you about whether there is such a thing as a Kenyan-African feminism, where they're the sort of feminist thinkers, uh, uh, Gloria Steinem's or whatever it is, all these people who in the West, Emily Pankhurst, people who are making a racket and writing books and giving speeches, not particularly because they want to be politicians, but because they want to educate their fellow women. But before we go on the break, Trade Unions, Federation of Kenyan Employers and Rights, do you think we've moved on for women, 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 women? Um, to be quite honest, I don't think so, because Mwalimu, when you think about trade unions in this country and you think about the people who are the heads of these trade unions uh, up to the, you know, to the lowest level, because remember to find, for example, Kotu is an agglomeration of various other smaller trade unions that are you know, specific to different sectors. Hardly do we hear of women being the leaders of these trade unions. Uh, so to answer your question, I think there's still so much more that we need to do to be able to elevate women in this space because it's a very important space uh, to fight for the rights of workers and articulate issues that have to do with unfairness in the workplace. Right. Uh, we're going to take another break, uh, and uh, perhaps it's been unfair of me, but in the next segment, I'm going to uh, allow you that question about a Kenyan feminism then I'm going to re not respond to what you have to say rather than you responding to my questioning. So let's take a break. The best mix of music Capital FM Daktari, uh, is there more space for intellectual thinking around women's rights in Africa as a continent? Absolutely a lot. Mwalimu, you asked, are there Kenyan feminists? Yes, there are. And I couldn't wait for you to ask me this question because you're a man of letters, you're a man of words. Uh, the Emily Pankhusts and all these women we talk about or read about in our encyclopedias, we read about them in, in the various books that we look at. You see the power of being able to record uh, since recording began. So we have had these discourses in Africa. Save, I mean, the only problem is that they've not been written about. So, for example, you look at the University of Nairobi at Independence. Was I mean, when you look at the way the three universities are during the East African community, there was a um, university in, uh, I think Makerere was handling, if I'm not wrong, engineering and economics. Dar es Salaam was handling law. And then uh, Kenya, I, think, I believe, was handling medicine. Imagine that that is the time that university people were, were I mean, our universities were beginning to develop. So there, since that time, there has been a great movement within our universities where we have thinkers, scholars who are writing about women in our country, women in the South. Uh, all that the West has done is to precede us in terms of recording, um, you know, the issues that they've thought about and the movements that they've gone through. Don't forget, of course, that our organic development was disrupted by colonialism. 
uh, and therefore what would have been an organic and structured you know evolution of of um, of Kenya of Africa have you ever thought about that mwalimu uh-huh. how would africa how would kenya have been had there been no colonialism so we are trying i mean we ha- i think great efforts have been made by our universities and thinkers to be able to structure and put together um, a thought that is women i mean a, a feminist thought that is kenyan and from the south and i'm happy to see that there have been great challenges to western feminism from scholars from india from asia and from africa today we have luminary names that exist of uh, people who are saying great things writing things our own movement in kenya uh, was guided by feminists from this country i think john you remember there was a time there was hardly anybody in parliament and um, during the martin chikuku times when you know yeah there were mm. very few mm. but today when you mm. look at parliament you have got the 47 women who have to be there it didn't come easy it didn't come from nowhere it came from people thinking about the position of women in leadership and other spaces and that's why we are where we are today and today john these feminist thinkers are now thinking about economics they're now thinking about women in the spaces of business women in, in different in different spaces so yes at the university of nairobi ku moi all these universities we have women departments departments that are writing and thinking about women's issues and it is growing and it is and it is big so may i ask you as we wind up what women need to do to consolidate this position what is the state of preparedness for the forthcoming vote um what do they need what do they need in order to vote is there a you know how you're packing before you go off on a international tour you know yes Yeah, what do they need to do? Uh I think the two things that um one needs to be able to participate in the elections next week is your ID card and then um your thoughts about who you'd like to elect. So the question would be from your I mean out of your listeners. You know how many have their IDs? Uh I don't know the demographic that um is listening to Uh, oh, capital m- FM millions, right now millions listen yes. to us every uh, millions is yes so out of that demographic how many have um their ids uh, and when you look at the, the the political rallies all across the country listening to different individuals how many of those have a voter's card and are therefore actually going to go to the polls and vote and uh just um you know following on from the discussions we had the importance of things about the health of women the businesses that women are you know are into the you know how they when they're senior citizens when if they have a disability all these things uh, mwalimu uh, they depend on you as a woman going to the polls to be able to vote so i would say that um if you stay back home you have voted nonetheless if you stay back home you have said those who've gone to the polls have made the decision and therefore it's important for you to make a conscious decision not an un- not an i don't know what would be the opposite well it would be it can't be unconscious maybe you're, you're sort of making it when you're <laughs> in your sleep yeah it's, yeah it's possible yeah so you've got to turn up you've got mm. to show up and mm. be able to you know cast your vote uh, to be able to choose the destiny that you most you know believe in um, rather than be a passive person at home making a decision and letting others do it for you so to be able to achieve the things that mwalimu um, inspired you to have this program today and i congratulate um you as being one of the progressive men uh, to oh, have thought you. about this uh, topic oh, very very you. timely uh, is so that much. yeah get up and go and vote i would like you uh, having thanked you i'd like you to another image that comes to mind a very topical image we go to the uh, rallies and here in kenya in our country 
the understanding. I've been to in such a forum where whoever was running told everybody to stay behind. Uh, we'd been to a funeral uh, and uh, one of the uh, candidates for election was at the funeral. So we went buried a relation of mine. And then the idea was to congregate and everybody was promised that anybody who stayed behind would be given a hundred shillings. So people stayed behind and mostly women, they have no money and everything. But again, as a lawyer, the legislation, if we've got CCTV cameras, this image of people handing out money as an incentive to get people to vote comment it's okay this is the african gene the kenyan gene this is the way we are this is our culture give me some money remember mwalimu we've moved from a time where when people received uh, these inducements to be able to vote they literally voted in the person who gave them the inducement the language today is you know eat at these persons but vote for who you want that language has changed but all this uh, of course mwalimu are what you would call bribes uh, which are um, an election offence. You are not supposed to bribe but the persons. But we see it happening. We see it happening, uh, Mwalimu, but now the, co the collection of evidence, and I guess no one, no one, uh, has no. A, no, one, no one at that level has a real interest yeah, to right. be able to prosecute, to prosecute these cases, although we've seen a few yeah. come to court. Uh, the standard of uh, being able to prove these things in court is onerous, and so the majority of ordinary persons will not be bothered with this. Right. Again, I wanted to comment. Uh, time is not on our side. Yes. But this idea that as a woman politician, I've, I've read the autobiography of a, a woman who was, I think, running in Meru, where there were slanders and slurs and uh, just the, the abuse of the woman in her, uh, the sort of chucking of frightful stuff at her and, and, and just uh, violence towards women politicians. Again, is this something that you register in the thinking or has it disappeared? In other words, it takes a certain amount of courage to be a woman politician or a uh, woman voter for that. Absolutely, Mwalimu. I salute all women who have put themselves out there in whichever political party to be able to stand for elections because it's no mean feat. And your own um, personal life. Your own personal life is under scrutiny. Absolutely. Your sexuality, your love life, everything is um, a bit sort of weird. Actually, the things that women who put themselves out there for electoral uh, elective positions go through is is absolutely, um, you know, quite frightening. And, um, and and one of the challenges that these women have is because as a woman, you could as well hire a gang of 16 people uh, to be able to retaliate. You know, when your male counterparts do this, then you also can as well have a gang of 20 to be able to, you know, frighten the male as well. But then this is the kind of thing that we're saying then makes you not be the woman who people get attracted to to vote for because of the In other the, words, you're, you, you might as well be a man. Yes, you might as well be a man. <laughs> so it is an issue of concern. Yes. And it's also an issue of concern when we see violence uh, before the elections, during the polling day, because this affects the participation of women in voting. Because, of course, no woman wants to go there and get injured when you have children at home. And you don't also want your personal life, you know, you know put out there, um, you know, who you're with, who you're not. Uh, you don't want that put out there just, you know, you know, just, you know, for people to have a laugh. Certainly not. That puts off some women. But I think there's a movement, John, where we're saying go out there and participate. Uh, don't be frightened by, by these things. But of course, we expect the law to take its course when people do these sorts of things. Daktari, who are you? Name yourself. Jinalako Nani. Mwalimu, Jinalangu ni Linda Musumba. Doctor. 
Dr. Linda Musumba. Okay, can you tell us a, a wee bit about your, uh, as an encouragement to other women and other young women, uh, what is the education that has led you to be, as we've said, a lawyer, a dean of a law school? Tell us what the inspiration was. Um, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm honest, John, when I was in secondary school, I looked at the subjects that there were and uh, figured out that um, if I chose this range of subjects, that would lead me to law because I wasn't very good at mathematics um, at, in, in school. So I took those subjects that I knew would lead me towards law and I found myself there. So having found myself there, I realized that this corresponds very much with my personality. So then I've, I've enjoyed law school. That's at the university level. Then have gone on to do my master's um, at, at, at Warwick in the United Kingdom. I did my PhD as well at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I continue to work towards getting a professorship in this. I'd like to say, Mwalimu as a dean, um, that I, I was very impressed by many students who came to law school, not on their first attempt or second attempt, on their third, on their fourth attempts, because the resources they had were not sufficient to bring them to law school, or they did not attain the marks that are required to do law in the, on the first round, they went back. I also have um, you know, cases of students who didn't make it to go to university, but, but then went the route of doing the diploma in law. Uh, and when you attain certain qualifications through the diploma, you are able to go on to university. I think the point is, um, whether you walk, you run, come by ship, get there. So if your route is to come through the diploma in law and you work hard and you elevate yourself, you'll get there. If your route is to come through university, if you have to do it the third time, uh, you know that you're in secondary school, you didn't one, do well, one more topical, get there. One more topical question. You've got two seconds to do this. Uh, do qualifications matter? You know that there's this whole hullabaloo about this fellow hasn't got a degree, therefore oughtn't to stand. Now, you've just said go out there and get to become a doctor and a professor. Uh, is, is, is education... A prerequisite for leadership it's not a prerequisite for leadership but it is important towards being an effective leader uh, when you look at the sort of documentation that for example that our leaders at the county assemblies and the national assembly have to look at it helps for you to be able to understand those documents or have the acumen to be able to understand them it is not fair to it is not fair to residents or constituents for you to be occupying a position where you're not able uh, to understand what is going on and therefore articulate. So the point I'm making is if you take up a job that requires you to do certain things, be competent and be good at it. Well, do you, you heard what she said. Be competent and be good at it. Uh, we have to stop there. Daktari, it's been a pleasure. Uh, uh, so, uh, here, what do I always say? I always say... Uh, do continue to give us feedback, hopefully positive and reassuring, on the Twitter handle at Capital FM Kenya or drop us a text or WhatsApp message on 0701-984-984. I've been talking to lawyer and academic Dr. Linda Musumba and you've been listening to John Sibyokumu on Wednesday. Thank you for doing that and until next time.